Sir, we've had a little problem. These two women are just arriving. They objected to giving up their weapons. Klingons do not surrender their weapons. Who are you? We are Lursa and Baton of the House of Duras. Hello and welcome to the Duras Sisters podcast. We may not be Klingons, but we are sisters. And I'm Ashlyn. And I'm Rihanna. <laughs> I like that change of we may not be. Yeah, I just felt like, you know, having a little bit of a change, but not too much of a change is what I need going into 2021. That's a joke. I need a lot of change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we are here in the last week of 2020. Thank you all for your continued listening of the Dora Sisters podcast. This show would not be possible without you. And we hope that 2021 will be as good as season six of Deep Space Nine. Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's the dream. Yes. <laughs> well, besides the end of season six, but we won't talk Well, about we that. don't talk about that here. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that Rihanna and I were just talking, and every time we see that people are listening to our podcast, week after week, we get so excited, and we just have to thank you. This has been one of the best parts of 2020 for me, and I'm sure for Rihanna too. And so thank you for listening. We are so excited to have this episode finally ready for you. We had a nice little holiday. New Year's is coming. And now we are about ready to talk about Deep Space Nine again for part two. Woohoo! Yeah, we are back talking about our families. And this week we are covering the families of Odo, Garrick, Golducott, Kira, and the Ferengis. So you know, we've got a lot of fun stuff in store. And we also have to let you know that you should take a look at the trigger warnings beforehand because these episodes are pretty dark. And we just want to make sure that we're taking care of our listeners, that we will be talking about some pretty intense stuff on this podcast, but we'll also be talking about Ferengi's shenanigans. So hopefully it's a good mix. Yeah, we're going to definitely be talking about Profit and um, Ferenginar, <laughs> you know, as well as like some crazy stuff that Golducott gets up to. So uh-huh. yeah, <laughs> a little bit of everything on this podcast. Yes. So Ashlyn, would you like to dive in as we discuss our favorite changeling, Odo? He is my favorite changeling because I don't like the other changelings. (laughs) (laughs) He's the only good changeling. He is. So, Odo. Odo is a character who I think definitely changes a lot over the series. And I have always loved Odo. Through my first watching of Deep Space Nine, Odo has always been one of my favorite characters. And after reviewing a lot of these family episodes with him, I'm just struck by how lonely he is, mostly, (laughs) because he, for such a long time in his life, he didn't even know what species he was. He had no idea there were other changelings like him, and he grew up in a lab. I mean, it reminds me of Data and Dr. Soon, Mm -hmm. kind of a similar relationship where Odo spent most of his formative years in a lab being prodded and poked and messed with. And he's got a lot of baggage from that, but also I think he's a very pure heart (laughs) and he's such a great balance with this cast. That's so great. I really like what you said about his pure heart because I think he always comes off as this tough guy. Obviously, he's the head of security on the station. He has to be tough and he has to be intense, but 
he is really just a big softie, especially when it comes to his crew and the people he considers family. And so I think it's really interesting getting into these episodes where we do see his so-called changeling family with what is called the Great Link and his relationship with Dr. Mora coming to light with how he interacts with them versus how he interacts with the crew members aboard Deep Space Nine is very, very different. Yeah, absolutely. Once Odo finds out that he has a family, he meets the female changeling and the other changelings, and he returns to the Great Link, and he chooses not to stay with them. And he has to go through a trial because he's not ready. I guess it's just too much pleasure to join the Great Link, and <laughs> he he's not ready for it. He has to be a rock, and he has to be a bird. <laughs> to actually learn how to become them in like this weird spiritual way that he hasn't done before because obviously like he wasn't with the great link and so dr mora didn't like teach him those kind of things they just taught him how to take the form not to be the thing exactly and so odo's going through this kind of spiritual transformation with in his process to try to join the great link but at the end of the day he decides that he does not want to join them and the female changeling tries to convince him to come back three times or more. And at one yeah. point, she even says to Wayun, I believe, or maybe Damar, to someone that the most important part of this war is getting Odo back to the Great Link. Everything else is secondary. I had wondered if she was serious about that because like, the Dominion War is such a huge part of the show. And that just is such a bold statement to make that I really didn't believe her. I was on Weyoun's side, whoever she was talking to in that scene, where I thought she was just trying to neutralize Odo to get him to join the Great Link again and to not be an asset for the Federation. But I I don't know. I Do you think she's genuine? Do you think she really just cares about Odo's well-being? I think that she cares about the changelings in general, and she cha- she cares more about her own species than she does about anyone else. And because they have this sort of code of honor about one changeling never harms another, and all of these ideals that you find true happiness in the Great Link and can't find it anywhere else, that kind of thing. And I think that it does come from a place of family and her wanting to like have it feel complete. But also she and the other changelings sent out all of these small changelings into the world and didn't expect them to come back for centuries. Yeah, I think I, Odo was 300 years too early. <laughs> yeah, like I think she was thrilled with, but I never saw her as more than just manipulative. I never saw it as genuine love for Odo. I saw it as a desire for whatever that sort of wholeness she's seeking. And maybe she thinks Odo will fill that void in her. I don't know. I just, I think it never feels genuine, but maybe to her it did in some way that we can't really understand. She says in this episode, in the search part two, she talks about how the urge to return home was implanted in your genetic makeup. So like that is wild that there's such a strong desire to return home. But I think that even in and of itself is a bit manipulative because it's making these beings pursue something that like they can't even control, essentially. Yeah, it reminded me of salmon, actually, <laughs> uh, you know, how salmon genetically have to return home to to mate again. Not that, I mean, is Odo going to mate? I don't want to talk about it. Um. <laughs> I mean, also go through that too with Pon Far. You know, there is a lot of that like return, returning home ideal in Star Trek. But 
I, I don't know. I feel like if Odo had joined, of course, it would have been terrible for Starfleet and the war and everything. I don't think Odo would have been as happy as he realized. I also, th- yeah, I, I love your answer. I totally agree with what you say. I think that she is kind of reminiscent of dictators because of the way that she is so obsessed with her species being the best. And I mean, she even turns Odo solid at one point, yeah, into a solid, into a human and says, I've given you what you truly desire. And then at the end of the episode, she says, maybe death would have been better. You know, she firmly believes that being a changeling is the best way and the only way. And she cannot understand Odo at all or why he rejects her over and over and over again. And it's because, obviously, because we have such a great family on the station and Odo's much more at home with them, even though he's, you know, reserved and keeping things close to his chest. He feels much safer with them on the station than he does with these manipulative (laughs) uh, changelings. Yeah, absolutely. I think... Also, he says in the search part two, when she's asking him why he won't join the Great Link after he discovers that his crewmen are being trapped in this simulation on his home planet, you know, it's wild, like half of his crewmates are just there. And Kira's there. When he realizes that he was being sort of manipulated by the female changeling, he says, I already have a link with these people. And I think that's really sweet. He created his own great link in in a way that, you know, isn't the way that he thought it would be, but I think it's better, you know, than he thought it would be. And I really love that. I totally agree. Well, I just love how open and how much they love Odo on the station too. He fits right in. Even Quark, even when they have their little banter. You know, when Odo's sick, that's what it was. Like he brings Bashir coffee and so that they can like help him work faster to find Odo a cure, you know, and I just, they really do love each other. Oh, they absolutely do. Part of the reason why the female changeling is this way is because she mentions their species used to be nomadic, where they would travel from civilization to civilization and live on planets every couple of years or just travel, it seems like. And they were treated with such hostility and unkindness that they retreated to their little planet and created their great link. Yeah. And to me, I just think she was really so burned you know to the fact that they just become a recluse society i understand her perspective because everything that she does with the dominion is from a fear perspective and she wants power and she wants control over the other species so they can't control her and the changelings but i love how easily Odo sees through this fear and see through this desire. And he chooses over and over and over again, like I said, to not join the changelings. And it just says so much about him. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about Mora. Um, So we see him a couple times in the episode The Alternate and then the episode Begotten. He is a Bajoran scientist who discovered Odo and discovered he was a living being. And I just, you know, I have so many mixed feelings about this guy. He was experimenting on Odo his whole childhood. And even when he comes to the station and sees Odo in the alternate, he says he's, quote, coming along nicely. So he's still treating him like an experiment. He says, I never thought he could do it, integrate successfully. So he has a lot of doubts about him. He doesn't have faith in Odo. But I do think that it's important that he came to the station to finally see Odo's progress and to see how well he's doing without and despite Dr. Mora. Yeah, I thought it said a lot that 
neither Odo nor Dr. Mora had been in contact at all since Odo left, because that's a two-way street. Mora is really angry that Odo never returns, but clearly that we know of. I don't think he wrote letters to him or, you know, sends him holographic messages. (laughs) I don't think he purposefully schedules visits until the first time we meet him. Yeah. And Odo is really shaken by this meeting because he, if he had it his way, I don't think he'd ever want to see him again. No, absolutely not. And even when Quark is like, oh, is this your dad? Odo does not want him to be called his father. He is very bitter. And honestly, rightfully so. I think that Dr. Mora did a lot of questionable things to try and like, quote unquote, make Odo grow and like push him. You know, I think parents use that excuse a lot of like, oh, I was just pushing you. I was just trying to make you better. And in this circumstance, at the end of this episode, the alternate, he says to Odo, I've done it to you again, haven't I, Odo? I made you a prisoner. And that Mm. just makes me so sad, you know, that it takes him so long to keep realizing it. And I think he kind of forgets it again in The Begotten when he comes back, when there's a baby changeling on board. I think that he's continuously forgetting that Odo has grown since he decided to leave and, you know, explore his own life. And he is having such a hard time of letting go of Odo and accepting him for who he is. I think it's a problem with Dr. Mora because he thinks of his time with Odo, obviously as a special time, but also as a time of significant scientific discovery. And so I think Dr. Mora, yeah, he'd love to have Odo back just in his life in general. But I think also because he would be making more advances and more progress on experimentation with the changelings. And so the idea of Odo coming back, suddenly he could have like greater prowess. He could get more money, write more papers, get more fame because of this. And so I think he's also looking on the good old days because that was when he was famous for what he was doing and you know when he got a lot of recognition and so i i I think it's tangled up in that too that's also the problem with these weird star trek relationships Mm -hmm. is sometimes your like foster dad is also your captor and experimenter and that's not great i do love that episode begotten when the baby changeling comes because odo carries that thing around with him everywhere he goes like it's a sack of flour and he's an eighth grader trying to learn how to carry a baby you know (laughs) like (laughs) he just adores this little changeling and he's so excited to meet it and we see at the end of the episode what made a difference in the end was Odo's kindness towards the changeling and not Dr. Mora's method of just doing things to provoke Odo to take a shape because he's angry at him or whatever. Yeah, he would like physically shock Odo into taking shape. And Odo said that sometimes he wouldn't do it just to spite him. And that's not a healthy relationship, you know, and obviously Odo couldn't speak verbally at that age, but that doesn't give him, you know, I mean, he's not giving consent to be poked and prodded like that. And I think the gentler hand did absolutely help this changeling. I think their progress initially was slow because Odo was afraid to push the changeling to do anything because he thought that it would create the same reaction that he had. I think Odo was afraid to push the baby changeling into hating him because of all the experiments, because that's exactly how Odo felt about Dr. Mora. And so obviously there's a greater parenting metaphor we can get from this, that sometimes you have to 
fight and have adversity to have change and growth, but too much is damaging. <laughs> yep, <laughs> you know, exactly. balance. There's a balance for everything. Always. Yeah. And Odo says in the episode, I promise I'll never treat you the way I was treated. And I think that also is the way that parents often approach their children is like, oh, I don't want to be like my parents, so I'm going to treat you a different way. And especially in this circumstance where he had practically an abusive experimental father. And so he reaches out to the child. That episode's so important because it gives Odo a sense of belonging and a sense of family like he never experienced before, not ever with Dr. Mora and not anything he will in the future experience with the Great Link. Yeah. That's which makes yeah. it so sad. I know. It's so sad. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> There is another character on the show that has an eerily similar situation as Odo, even though they are completely different species, different ages, everything about them is different. But Garrick and Odo actually have a lot in common, especially with how intense and insane Garrick's father was growing up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> intense <Yes>. and insane. <laughs> I mean, that's about sums them up. I mean... And Abram Tain was the head of the Obsidian Order. He put a implant into his son, The Wire, which um, fan- I love that episode. Fantastic episode. Yeah. And literally when Dr. Bashir goes to an Abram Tain in that episode and talks to him, he Tain says to him, I want him to live a long, miserable life. <laughs> he doesn't want his son to die because he wants him to suffer. I mean, Tain is the reason that Garrick was exiled. He's the reason that he has claustrophobia. He's the reason why he has all of these traumas. He's the reason why he's isolated from his culture and his community. He's the reason why he was in the Obsidian Order. Yeah. Yeah. Also, re-watching all of these Garrick episodes with his dad, I did not realize, and thank God Rihanna reminded me, but I had forgotten that Tane was his father, and it is not revealed until really late in the series. And so you're not supposed to know this relationship is going on. I mean, I, it would be tough for me to guess that he was his father because he hates Garrick. He hates yeah. him. He's terrible to him. I mean, he has several different quotes like that. Even when he's lying on his deathbed, he says, I should have killed your mother before you were born. You have always been a weakness I couldn't afford. That sort of attitude shows just how little family matters to Tane and how the order and his own greatness matters far more than his own son and his own wife, his mother. I, I don't know if they were actually married. It's probably I don't think it's doubtful, but um, I have no idea. <laughs> I don't think Payne could love anyone enough. And it is interesting to see how Garrick always comes back to save him. I mean, there's a point where when we still don't know that he's his father, where mm-hmm. Tane is presumed dead because of this massive explosion of Cardassian ships. But Garrick never stops looking for him. He keeps asking about him. He keeps searching these sectors, going on different missions to try and find him. And it's all because he does care in this way that I don't think even Garrick can explain. That's why it can be so difficult when you have these ties of blood and of family is because you feel this certain 
devotion and obligation to them, you know, regardless of how horribly you were treated. I see this deeply with Garrick that there's so much trauma entwined with dependence, I think, in this because Garrick depended on Tane to help him stay alive during his Obsidian Order days. He sent him on these missions. He fueled Garrick. His interrogations were probably fueled by thoughts of Tane. And I can't imagine what that would do to your head, you know, to know that you have been abused and you've suffered so much by the hand of your father, but you also can't help but want to save his life and want to still help him regardless of how terribly he treated you. Garrick will do anything for Tane and he hates that. There's just so much to unpack here <laughs> with, all, yeah. with all these characters. What's remarkable about Garrick is that he is always hoping that his father will be proud of him at some point or say something to him that's positive. And time after time, no matter what Garrick does, he's searching for that satisfaction. And even once again, the scene where Tane is on his deathbed, Garrick asks him, can you at least say thank you for having me go across the galaxy to find you, to try and save you? Can you at least say thank you? And he, he just doesn't. He doesn't care. Yeah, it's messed up because Tane sent Garrick the message to come and find him because yep. he knows Garrick will do it regardless of how terrible he's been to him. And yeah, like Tane does say he's proud of him. That's his last words. But I just I think that's sort of placating. And I think it's a way to settle him down and have him like do what needs to be done to escape essentially and <laughs> Well, yeah. and it's not it's not enough. It's like Riker's dad coming after 13 years and saying, I love you, son. You know, one, yeah. I'm proud of you, Garrick, is not enough to assuage the horrible things that has been done to him his whole life. Absolutely. So the die is cast was a fantastic episode. I loved rewatching that one. The writers brilliantly crafted these two characters to kind of go through the same struggle <laughs> in the same episode. Odo and Garrick go to meet Tane and they realize that he's been working for the Dominion. He's been I believe. With the Romulans. Oh, it's the Romulans. That's yeah. right. Yeah, that's right. Um, but Garrick ends up turning on Odo and joins his father. <laughs> during, yeah. yeah. And Odo is tortured for more information, even though he knows that Odo doesn't have it. Garrick tortures Odo into finding out more information about the changelings. Because he knows that he'll be killed if he doesn't have any info. And so it's sort of Garrick's way of like, this is a kindness. I'd rather torture you than have you killed. And he's using his status as what we know of right now as Tane's mentee to keep both Mila safe, which is his old housekeeper, who is practically like a mother to him. Questionably, you know, probably maybe. could be the mother. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He is really trying to play both sides, but you're right. I mean, he does turn on Odo in a way that is hard to watch. I just think it was a quick choice. I mean, I know Garrick's trying to protect these people, but it seems like he easily falls right back into line with where he was with his father 10 years ago. And they're acting like old chums. His father is rewarding him by hanging out with him and drinking with him. They're having canard together. This is exactly what we saw with Odo when he rejoined the Great Link. You know, he's being standoffish to his friends and he's trying to become a cactus or whatever. Um, <laughs> but both of these people, both of these men are so desperate to be loved by the people that they love, that they'll do anything. And they both know that it's the wrong choice. <laughs> 
but they can't help but do it. I mean, how do you say no to your dad when he's asking for something like that, especially with trying to rescue him? There's just something in your DNA where if someone is blood related to you, you can't say no. Like it's that loyalty. That's a really amazing episode. Yeah. Well, something that Odo says to him, because I think Odo is also beautifully forgiving in this episode too of Garrick because he says, I can certainly understand your desire to come home. He really gets it, I think, more than most would because both of these people are outcasts from their own culture, from their own community. I mean, Odo was practically exiled. I mean, later he is when they turn him human. And I think that that is such a unique and terrible position to be in, to be completely isolated from your entire culture. It's like if we just got kicked off Earth right now and you're just like the only human or like, you know, even getting kicked out of your own country and not being able to return. I saw like seven seasons of Doctor Who. I know what that's like, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, very much uh, the Doctor type vibes. Doctor vibes for sure. So true. I do love that that's what Odo admits under pressure of torture. The the thing that he was hiding so deep down in his heart was that he wanted to return to the Great Link. And once Garrick finds that out, I think he respects Odo in a new way because, yeah, they're having the same problem. And they both know that it's the wrong choice. Yeah. They can't, but you can't help how you feel. Exactly. I mean, Garrick said in the episode in Purgatory Shadow, sentiment is the greatest weakness of all. And Garrick knows that. He knows that his father is his weakness and it doesn't change his mind, but at least he knows. I know that I will always turn to him and help him over anyone else. I think also because he feels a kind of pressure to alleviate a debt because Tain was the one who exiled him. And I think he wants to both get back in his good books and to feel loved again. I mean, truly, that's where the root of it is. Same with Odo. Like, they just want to be accepted and loved by the people who call themselves their family. And when they're not, it's heartbreaking. This really makes me think about even when Tane is dying and Garrick is pleading to him, like, please just say thank you. He says, for this moment, let me be your son. Mm. And I don't think that Garrick was ever allowed to be sort of the son who got cared for. I mean, when he was younger, Garrick tells Ezri in the episode After Image that he was locked in a closet until he learned his lesson. And he thought that he deserved to be locked in the closet because he was being, quote, stubborn. And I think that there's a lot of misplaced guilt there. There's a lot of him trying to make amends for something that's not his fault, but because he's been abused and pushed into these situations by his father, he never got to be a son who was loved by his father. And so he's desperately trying to seek it all the time. Yes, I totally agree. I think that their relationship is even more twisted up in Garrick's mind because the following episode after Tane dies by Inferno's Light, that's where we really see Garrick having a lot of problems with claustrophobia. And his father has just passed away. And Garrick is the only one who can communicate to the runabout because he's the only one who can break the Cardassian codes, I believe. Mm -hmm. And so he's in this back corner of the prison, like inside the wall, trying to send this message out. But his claustrophobia is acting up so much he can't even do this, even though the lives of all the prisoners are in his hands. And at one point, 
the light is going out and Garrick is talking to himself. He's basically talking himself through it. Like, you got to be strong. You can't let this small thing destroy you. You can't let something so trivial as claustrophobia wreck your whole life, you know? Because he talks to Tane in these mutterings, it, these kind of madnesses, because he's so scared <laughs> by what he's doing. And he talks to Tane. And I wonder if a lot of Garrick's internal voice is his father. And so I think a lot of the jokes, like the kind of rude jokes that he says, so, I mean, don't get me wrong, Garrick is hilarious. <laughs> um, but sometimes, you know, he can be a little like a little icy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I wonder when Garrick is talking to himself, it's not really Garrick talking to Garrick. I think it's his image of Tane talking to him as he had when he was a child. But the thing is, it works. That pep talk that he gives himself works and he was able to save everybody on the station. And so I think Garrick believes that his father is his greatest weakness, but also his greatest strength. Mm -hmm. And that's complicated. Yeah. <laughs> how do you how do you move forward with your life and try to unweave all of these emotions <laughs> you have? You know, it's, it's very, very difficult. And no wonder he kind of starts to lose it in the end of the seventh season. And when he starts having a little bit of therapy sessions with Esri, I think it's very beneficial to start untangling all of that. Yeah, absolutely. When he's in that tight space trying to get that code, he says, you may not have been much of a father, but I really wish you were alive right now. Mm -hmm. Which exactly nails home your point. You were saying that he does talk to him and he does need him in this sort of perverse way. I also found it interesting that when he's talking with Esri, he finally admits that he feels like a traitor because he's been breaking all these Cardassian codes to try and help the Federation win the war. And that's what's bringing up a lot of his claustrophobic attacks. And I think that also is probably his internal father's voice calling him a traitor, saying that he's turning his back on his people. And He's already been exiled. He's already been away from home for so long. But every time he saw his father, he was so close to having that back and having being home on Cardassia again. And uh, yeah, it's just it's horrible. I don't I don't even know how he like gets through. But I'm glad that he does have Esri to talk that through and to start to like reconcile why he's having these attacks. Yeah, I'm also glad just throughout the series that he has Bashir with yes. him because their friendship relationship really grows and Bashir like you mentioned now like 20 minutes ago Bashir does meet Tane at one point because Garrick had been telling a story that, about his friend Elam and at that point Bashir didn't even know that Garrick's first name was Elam he didn't mm -hmm. even know and so it just shows how tight Garrick holds everything to his chest and I was very surprised that he even allowed Esri to talk to him in the first place, that he was patient enough to try to let her talk to him because he has just shoved all of that deep, deep, deep down where no one can find it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that Julian is such a essential part of Garrick's healing throughout the series. I mean, he helps him remove the chip in the episode The Wire, even though he says terrible things to Julian, says that he wishes he was never his friend, wishes he would just go away, all these things, and Julian is steadfast by his side. And even when Tane is dying and Tane can't see anymore, Garrick says that they're alone together, but Julian's really in the room with him. And I think that he needed him in that moment, even just as silent support. And I think he also wanted somebody 
besides himself to know that Tane was his father. And it was the first time that he was allowing his like real truth to come out. And of course, Julian is the person he would turn to. Like Bashir is the, of course, his person, you know? And I do find that similar to Odo with Kira, sort of like lost boys found their people who can ground them into their new lives and who can show them that like, you can have a family. It doesn't have to be the ones that neglected you and that exiled you. Yeah, I totally agree. There are a couple scenes where Garrick does really lose it on people. Like he says terrible things to Esri. He says terrible things to Julian. I think based off of his history, his father was always saying terrible things to him. And so whenever he feels like he's getting too close with someone, he lashes out just like his father probably did. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like that's an unconscious thing that he can't control. He just feels like he has to drive people away once they start getting too close because he's continuing the cycle. And yeah. he's very lucky to have such patient people around him who love him. Even like people like Quark. I love his and Quark's relationship. You know, I just... I'm so grateful that we have this beautiful family on DS9 who go through so much together and are willing to go to bat for each other when they're at their worst. Or when they're in the hollow suite. Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, I almost, because some of these Cardassian episodes were really rough, like very, very dark to watch. And I almost wanted to watch Taking It to the Hollow Suite kind of as a palate cleanser. (laughs) Right, a reprieve from the bananas journey we were going on, right? Garrick is truly trying to find people who are kindred spirits and who understand him. And I think you're right that he finds that in Julian and the people on the station. But I think he's also searching for that when Golducott's daughter, Zial, comes on the station and they start to have, uh, I don't really know what to call it because it creeps me mm-hmm. out that they would have a relationship because she's like 19. But they do have sort of a bond of being the only Cardassians on the station, of being outsiders to Cardassia. She's half Bajoran, so she's not really welcome on Bajor or on Cardassia. I mean, she tries it out on Bajor, but you know, I thought that we could jump into Zial and how she is also sort of straddling two worlds that are both rejecting of each other. Well, okay. Let's let's just start by saying Zial is an amazing character for yeah. so many reasons. The first episode that we meet her, we find out that Zial is a survivor of a crash. We find out that Zial has been basically in a prison camp her whole life. Mm-hmm. And she is just delightful. Yeah. <laughs> and Golducott and Kira find her because they both hear that this ship went missing and they track it and they find Ziel. And I love her and Kira's relationship. I love that Kira is such a dynamic part of her life and someone who literally saves her life because Golducott wants to kill her because he knows that she will destroy his position on Cardassia if it's known that he had a Bajoran mistress. Well, and I think I, you know, I'm the last person to defend Golducott, but he also says, and I'm not sure if this is an excuse or not, and I wanted to talk a little bit about this because Kira thinks, oh, it's just because you want to cover your position because it would be a scandal if it turns out that you had a baby with a Bajoran during the occupation. And he says that he would rather kill her than have her be like rejected and not allowed to live in a society on Cardassia with him. And that he's quote unquote like saving her from her suffering or like from future suffering. And that's why he actually sent her mother, Naprim and Zial away in the first place on this transport was so that they wouldn't have to suffer the sort of scorn of 
Xiao being a half Cardassian, half Bajoran. So like, what do you do? You think that there's any fidelity in that, or do you think it's just Golducab making lies as usual? <sighs> I never really know the truth with him, and there were so many times throughout these episodes I would assume one thing about him, and then the opposite would be true. I mean. Let's spoil it now. Zial does not survive the series, and that's one of the hardest episodes to watch. But as a result, Goldukat loses his mind. He literally loses it. He's like fighting with hallucinations. He's firing weapons like at nothing because he thinks he's talking to people. He loses it. He's literally in a mental hospital for a while. And I kind of assumed that the whole relationship with his daughter was not genuine. I thought that he was faking it and was kind of flaunting her as a tool of some kind, but I could never figure it out. And so the fact that her death affected him so much was really, really surprising to me. And to be honest, I just didn't believe anything he said that was good about her. (laughs) I just don't trust him because, I mean, he's gold to cut. (laughs) (laughs) But now with the context, like knowing that this love is genuine, I I think that both can be true. I think that he can love her and care about her, but he can also use her as a political pawn. And I mean, throughout their relationship, he disowns her and then she takes him back and then he disowns her again and she takes him back. Just seems like there's no limit to what Zial can take from him. And I think she is so grateful that he kept her around and didn't kill her. She genuinely loves him and does not see his faults as clearly as everybody else can. Yeah, this is another tough relationship to unpack here. (laughs) God, it comes from a place of being in a prison camp from the ages 13 to 19. You know, that was those are your formative years and you're a prisoner and then someone comes to save you and you latch onto that. You know, I think that regardless of how your father shows up and wants to kill you, she doesn't back down in this episode. She says, if I cannot be here with you, then I'd rather die. And I think that it's definitely iffy. You know, I mean, that is a very yikes. <laughs> I don't know how to say it. <laughs> but also like understandable, you know, that if you've gone through all this and someone can be your savior, then you're going to latch on to that. And I think that Kira is truly a great, great part of her life and an adage that is so important. And I wish that we had seen more of Kira's reaction to Zial's death. You know, I think that she does get to talk about it a little bit. But not to the the amount of grieving I think that Kira deserves for that. Um, and, not, and not what we deserve because I want to <laughs> see too. Yeah, exactly. But I think that Kira does have a soft spot for Zial and like when she's showing her artwork to them and Kira is literally willing to hang out in the same room with Dukat and like reconcile some things with him just to be with Zial and just to help her. And... I think that that is very telling because Dukat is so toxic and he's awful. And of course, he was like one of the instigators of the occupation. And so Kira has a lot of trauma, even from just seeing Dukat. But she sticks it out for Zial and she helps to get her a life on Bajor. And then she's accepting of whatever path she needs, if she needs to stay on Deep Space Nine for a bit. But I honestly, I do see Dukat's love for her, but it's his weird way of showing it. And it's this sort of toxic way of showing it because he wants to control her. Yes, that's the key, I think. Think to all of this. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he wants There's, to control her. Yeah, I mean, in the episode where Ducat finds out that Garrick and Zial are having a relationship, or at least are they're they're talking and holding hands and stuff, Ducat is so mm-hmm. mad, and he says that he's not allowing her to see him again. And Kira stands up for her and says, it's like not your decision, Dukat. Like this is Zial's life. You know, and that can be seen as sort of like an overprotective dad. But I think for Dukat's purposes, it goes way further than that. It, it's his desire to control everything around him, including his daughter. And that is what continuously pushes her away is the fact that he is constantly forcing his opinions on her. And she believes that Dukat has changed and that he deeply regrets his actions during the occupation and that he was trying to stop a lot of the prison camps and everything. And none of us, I think, really believe that except for Zial. But she, you're right, she's desperate to see the best in Dukat. And I think that is something that it's really hard to reconcile. She did even say once, like, I used to think my father was a hero. And she does go back and forth. Like, she starts to realize that, like, I don't want to be a Cardassian if this is how you treat people. And yeah, it's tough. I'm trying to think of this from Zial's perspective. So she was living with her mother totally in secret when she was born until she was 13. And then she's crashed on this planet. I'm imagining that all she's thinking the entire time she's there is about her father mm-hmm. and about how someday he's going to come and rescue her and somehow they'll find a way and they'll be able to come back together. And if you think that for so long and then once you really do see your dad, your hero, your knight in shining armor, it's going to take a lot for that image to be stripped away. And Goldicott does his best to strip that image away, <laughs> but she is totally blinded to him and firmly believes that he's changed. And I mean, from her perspective, she thinks that there is some goodness in him because he loved her mother. And that feels probably like a special bond that despite everything going on in the occupation, you were good all along because you loved my mother and you love me. And you don't hate the Bajorans. It's all a misunderstanding. And I mean, that's like literally in her DNA. Mm -hmm. And so I understand why she forgives him again and again and again. But it's just tough to see. And it's hard to see her manipulated. And especially when she's just such a little ray of sunshine. I really like that she does put her foot down when he's trying to evacuate her in the episode Sacrifice of Angels, which is sadly the episode where she dies. Yeah. But she refuses to leave the station. But they have this conversation right before she dies where so Zial says to him, no matter how much I try to hate you, I can't. And he said, I couldn't live with myself if you hated me. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that they did have their sort of version of reconciliation right before she died, which I guess provides a little bit of comfort, but not really because it's Damar who kills her. It's this whole mess. Um, I just Damar is not my favorite in that scene. (laughs) (laughs) No, he doesn't become a a good guy until a while after. And just to further complicate things, Zial's mother was not the only Bajoran that he was with during the occupation. And it is even creepier and weirder to me to know that Kira is such an important part of this dynamic with Zial and Dukat because Dukat was sleeping with Kira's mother for the other part of the occupation where he wasn't with another Bajoran, you know? And 
Dukat has always had a fascination with Kira. Now we know why. And it's disturbing. Ziel asked Kira at one point, why do you help me? And Kira said, it's because you remind me of me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You remind me of myself. And the episode where we find out that Kira's mother has been with Dukat, where Kira goes, she looks into an orb, prophet orb, mm-hmm. and they send her back in time and Kira's allowed to witness this happening. It's a very tough episode to watch. And just knowing afterward or how tight the three of them were, Zigal, Dukat, and Kira, is, is just creepy. I don't know how else to say it. <laughs> What disturbs me so much about this too is that Kira doesn't even find out until after Zial is dead. She thinks that her mother died in a refugee center when she was three and only until Ducat is saying all these personal things that he knows about her mother, about a scar that she had on her cheek, about f- her favorite flowers, that Kira is suspicious about their relationship. And that's when she you know, uses the time orb and everything. And I think that this episode is another instance of a child starting to see their parent for who they really are. I think that we see a lot of discoveries in this of parenthood and how I think all even in an average parent, we, I think as children, look up to our parents and they are superheroes until the days you start learning they're human, you know, or in this case, Bajoran. <laughs> and, and and for the most part, your parents always stay superheroes, but, yeah. but they're also human. They can be both. <laughs> yeah. And like you start to realize, oh, my parents can make mistakes. Like I didn't know that. And so mm-hmm. I think that it, this happens with Zial, this happens with Kira, going to happen with Quark. <laughs> and so I think- <laughs> Okay, flash forward into yeah, our pod. Exactly. We're using a time warp to tell you about what's going to happen on the pod soon. <laughs> um, but it's beneficial in a way that's also horrible. You know, I think the truth can be important, but also terrible. And that she's learning that her mother, she thinks her mother fell in love with Dukai and was just sort of sitting back, enjoying the meals, enjoying this life with Ducat, but I had a question about that. Do you think that she fell in love with Ducat or do you think that she was just doing what she could to help her family survive? I think it's a case of, um, what do you call it? Like Beauty and the Beast syndrome. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, Beauty and the Beast is kind of Stockholm syndrome, but I think in this case with Kira's mom, it is Stockholm syndrome because she has been living in a prison camp for so long that when she gets on Goldicott Station and she sees that there's an abundance of food for everyone to eat, she's taken by that. And then she feels bad about it. And she's like, oh, I wish the children were here. But I mean, can you blame her? (laughs) You know, I mean, she's of course made of really strong stuff. But I think when you've gone through so much trauma, you just want to put it away. And I think it helped her a lot knowing that her husband, that Kira's dad, he knew what was going on and he was so thankful for her sacrifice. I mean, without her doing what she did, Kira would not have survived the occupation, you yeah. know? Yeah, her family. Yeah. I don't think they would have survived. And I think she was in love with him, but it was also she was in love with the free food and the beautiful dresses. And that doesn't make her shallow at all. I'm saying that she was in such a horrific time of her life that you just have to do whatever you can to survive. And I think Kira has always thought do whatever you can to survive meant 
bombing a room or joining the resistance or fighting tooth and nail to accomplish something. But this is a different kind of resistance. This is a different type of way to survive. In this case for her mom, it was just to allow her circumstances to continue and do it for the kids. And if she found love along the way, good. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, the other thing that creeps me out about this too is that Zial and Kira are kind of like daughter figures for Ducat, and yet he still pursues Kira relentlessly. Because Ducat is losing his mind when he reaches out to Kira in the first place to tell her that I knew your mom and it's her birthday, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. He's losing it because Zial has just died. And so. I'm wondering, is he thinking about Ziel's mother at all? You know, like, was she just like a side chick to Kira's mom? Who was the real one that he loved? But I think the answer was none of them. I think he liked the power and the position was what he really loved. And he told Kira's mom, I'm writing to the ministers. I'm going to stop the war. I'm going to stop the occupation. That's exactly what he told Ziel. That's what he tells everyone in his life. Sorry, I'm getting heated because I hate him so much. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I 100% agree. I think that he didn't love any of these women. I mean, one of the Cardassians at this party that all of these, quote, comfort women are at, which is a horrible, horrible thing. He was like, oh, there he goes again. This is always what he does, where he saves one of the Bajoran women from a guy who seems sleazy. And he's like, no, we don't treat them like that. No, huh? I'm going to be your knight in shining armor. Let me get you some flowers. Let me do all this. And I think it's very telling when Ducat gets the dermal regenerator and removes Kira's mom's scar from her cheek. I don't think it's out of kindness. I think it's about removing his own guilt and removing the marks that Cardassia has put on these Bajoran women and on Bajor in general. Oh, I took that a totally different way. I took it as removing her scars will help her to fall more easily into her present and it'll make her forget her past because now when she sees her face that scar's not going to remind her of the occupation mm-hmm. you know she's just going to see this beautiful face in the mirror living a beautiful life i think he's purposefully trying to alienate them from their pasts when he does things like that because your scars are important i mean yeah they're like ugly but (laughs) they're memories and they make up who you are and him erasing that is a violation to me he should have asked i'm just saying (laughs) yeah or like not done any of this (laughs) but yeah yeah i absolutely agree that's a really really good take and a really good reading of that yeah so ducat plays the hero in all of this so that he can get women in his good books and I think that Kira is so surprised that she's that her mother is not enacting the same kind of resistance that Kira does because she thinks that she's a collaborator. You know, she thinks that she's completely turned her back on Bajor. Kira's mother gets the transmission from her husband, from Kira's father, and Kira can clearly see the pain that her mother's in and see the sacrifices that she's made for her family and the choices that she makes in order to bring them a better life, you know, and her father saying, oh, like, Nerese has never been happier. She's gained a lot of weight since then. And it's just, you see like her just sobbing. Yeah, I think that is the moment where Kira realizes that her mother was making those sacrifices and she saves both Dukat and her mother, Maru. I just realized it's her name. Yeah, I mean, I think it was surprising that she ended up saving Dukat in that moment because she knew that he could provide a life for her where she could be 
semi-happy and where, you know, continue to live where she gets free food and housing. And I think she did it for her mother, not for Ducat, obviously. No matter what she did, she was still my mother. That's what Kira says at the end. And I really do love that quote. I think also she couldn't kill Ducat because that would change the timeline. Well, yeah. Um, (laughs) But- She was ready to do it though. She had the bomb in the quarters. Like she was completely ready to just- She was ready to do it. Well, let's talk about that. She hated her mother so much when she realized what she was doing and how she wasn't fighting back that she was ready to kill her. She literally planted a bomb in her quarters and said, I don't care if she gets caught in the explosion. Because one of the requests, uh, as Kira's mom is getting dragged away in the Bajoran camp, she says to her husband, don't let the children forget me. Mm -hmm. And clearly he did not because Kira knows that she liked these flowers and that today's her birthday. And her father really kept her memory alive throughout the years to the point where Kira thinks of her as Wonder Woman. Like that's her superhero. And so I think Kira took such a drastic action because her hero was taken from her and she suddenly sees her mom as incredibly weak-minded and just stupid, basically, for being a collaborator with Golducott, I think. Mm -hmm. And I think that was such a shock to her because Kira, the core of her (laughs) is this fierce, fighting, amazing person who has so much strength. And I know that she draws that strength from the memory of her mother. And I mean, how many times has she been probably fighting a Cardassian and said, this is for my mom? Yeah. (laughs) And I think to have that image just stripped from her was really shocking. And once she sees that transmission from her dad, she knows this is a mistake. (laughs) This is not the situation I think it is. Let's let's save them. So, Rihanna, we, we've had a very depressing episode. Let's talk about female Ferengi rights. <laughs> Woo! Yeah, let's lighten it up, Rihanna. Let's talk about, I think, definitely my favorite Ferengis in any show. For Nog, sure. Quark, and Rom, and Moogie. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> my okay. true love, Moogie. <laughs> Do we want to start with Moogie? Can we just start with the queen? I'm shaking with joy. I would love to talk about Moogie, my feminist icon. (laughs) Oh my God. She is wearing clothes. She is making money. Oh, I love her. (laughs) I love her. Not only that, but she's fighting Quark tooth and nail to be respected. And she's the head of the house, whether you like it or not. (laughs) Absolutely. And I love how she talks about her husband, her late husband. I assume he's dead or left Mm -hmm. i don't they never really talk about him Mm -hmm. except for that he's not around i think he died i think he died so yeah his work is like gee i wish father were still alive then it'd be like the old times but moogie and rom really break that gold vision that quirk had of his father and tells him that he actually had no business acumen and it was moogie who was giving him advice about how to make money and how to manage the books and all of that as moogie says her husband was weak lobed <laughs> he was a weak lobed yeah. fool yeah yeah i mean she's got the lobes in this family like she she's got, got the lobes, lobes. <laughs> and I love that about her because it's not traditional and she was never a traditional Ferengi female in so many ways. Females on Ferenginar are not allowed to wear clothes. 
and they're not allowed to leave the planet. They're not. Yeah, they can't to- travel at all, which Literally. totally makes sense. Why we've never seen a female Ferengi before until Mugi. Like, yeah. I mean, all through Next Generation, we never meet a female Ferengi at all, and this is why. Yeah, sexism, <laughs> sexism, <laughs> patriarchy at its worst. Um, yeah so I love that Mugi has her pride she's standing against tradition and making her own way and this is what gets her in trouble with the FCA with Brunt (laughs) the worst guy ever (laughs) I hate Brunt that was the worst part of these episodes was every time he just walked in I was like can we get out of here I hate you like he's back again like damn he was really after their butts in this, but Quark and Rom are brought back to Franganar because she has been earning money, which is illegal for Ferengi women to do. And I love that she's just unapologetic about it. She's like, yeah, I have been. What of it? I wanted more than just the like stipend that Quark gives me. And so she created this business empire. I mean, she has a lot of latinum. Quark accuses her. He says, you're a selfish female who never cared about this family, father or me. Which, like, is not true, first of all. Just flip that sentence around, because Quark is a selfish Ferengi who never cared about (laughs) anyone else. Exactly. Well, and I love, too, how sweet Rom is to Mugi and how Mugi dotes on Rom. I love their relationship. I think it's it's just precious, you know, because Rom also is not a traditional Ferengi, and he understands, I think, more than most – what his mother's trying to do. He's still a little shocked when she's like wearing clothes, but he's like, oh, I accept it. And he says to Quark too, that he stayed 10 more years after Quark left. And he learned that their father, of course, wasn't a financial genius that they thought he was. And he, I think, got to see more into their life and in their household than Quark ever did because Quark also hasn't been back in 20 years. He really doesn't come to visit Franganar a lot, I think mostly because of Mugi. Absolutely. I was just going to say that. And I just think it makes sense. Rom is someone who is maybe a traditional mama's boy. He loves Mugi, but who wouldn't? I also am a mama's Mugi. <laughs> I'm a movie girl. And Quark is very independent and he does not want to have any attachments at all. And I was surprised that he hadn't been home in 20 years. Do you remember what season that episode is? Mm, like or what? three or four? I can't it's remember. Pretty, it's pretty, yeah, the point I'm trying to say is that it's pretty early. And Quark, I mean, his arc is amazing. I love Quark as a character. There's a later episode, uh, I think in a couple of seasons, where Quark goes to Moogie when he's feeling lost. Yeah. And if they hadn't had their rekindling of their relationship over this, over Moogie making money, that's a lot of M's, (laughs) Moogie making money, I don't think Quark would have gone home to her. And I think they have a special relationship because Moogie is so much like Quark and she has the lobes and he has the lobes and they're so similar. I think Quark doesn't like it because he's trapped by societal expectations that she's not allowed to do any of this stuff and he thinks it's going to ruin him. Quark is super selfish. And so everything that Moogie is doing to push the limit is driving him nuts. (laughs) But I think it's especially important in this episode that she says that she's not going to sign that document saying that she did something wrong. I love that because she says that's how real change is made, is if I said it was wrong, then I would be agreeing with this horrible idea. And I just love that Rom is supporting her no matter what, because it's Moogie, you know? It's his and, baby. 
Yeah. yeah, it's Ms. Moogie. And I love the relationship that the three of them have over a couple of years and just to see how close they do become. Absolutely. This is the thing that I agree about with Quark. Like he has such good arcs. And I think Quark is the champion of doing the right thing eventually. <laughs> like in the end, he always does the right thing, but it just takes him like a whole a whole episode. And in the last like five minutes, he has a change of heart, which I think is both his brother's influence and being aboard a mostly human and Federation station for so well, long. Quark says that himself. He says, because there's one point where Quark is turning to being an arms dealer at the station and he ends up getting cold feet and he says he blames the Federation that he's around all these righteous people all the time and they're ruining him. <laughs> yeah, they're slandering his Ferengi society. But I think that in this circumstance, he does help Moogie out where she actually has a lot more finances and a lot more latinum than the FCA realize. And he helps protect her from that and lets her keep the rest of it. You know, I mean, obviously it's because he gets a cut of it. But I still think that another Ferengi maybe would have just turned her in immediately and made sure she got rid of all her latinum and all of that. And so I think that Quark does end up making these great decisions for his family, but with Whoa. the incentive of latinum always. Also, I would say this first reconciliation they have is all because of Rom, because Quark is ready to turn in Moogie until yeah. Rom comes and he lies and says that Moogie's going to give him half. So true. And Moogie says, I did not say that at all. I didn't even say I was sharing it. Yeah. But it's Rom's faith that they can work it out if they sit down and talk about it. I think that's what saves the day. Rom is such an understated and important character in this dynamic. And I love how thoughtful he is and how well he knows everybody in order to orchestrate this little plan to come together. And because he's Quark's conscious at the end of the day, he kind of guides Quark into doing the right thing and giving him a little bit of help. Absolutely. I mean, I think that we obviously don't know their father, but there's a quote where Moogie says, even if Keldar, this is the father's name, even if Keldar didn't know the first thing about Prophet, he knew everything about family. And I feel like mm -hmm. probably as much as Moogie and Quark are alike, probably Keldar and Rom were very much alike because Rom does love and focus so much on family. I mean, he is so devoted to Quark, even when Quark is being a just terrible to him, you know, in manipulating him and using him and insulting him and all of these things. He's just like, oh, brother, like, whatever. I'll just, you know, you're just, I love you, brother. And he loves Nog like crazy, you know? And so I think that that is where more of Rom's foundations come from. I mean, even when he's marrying Lita, he donates all of his latinum to the Bajoran orphans because he knows that love is more important than latinum and family is more important than latinum, which is not a Ferengi ideal at all, but it's very sweet and I love him so much. I think you're so right. He's so underrated in this series. I think he does sometimes fall into the trap of the toxic masculinity, toxic Ferengi culture, yeah. especially on his wedding day or around the time he's getting married. He talks to Dax and O'Brien and they mention like, oh, you're not a very traditional Ferengi. Like she's not going to be naked at the wedding and <laughs> she's not signing the prenup that will give all of her latinum to him. And Rom freaks out because when he's called out like that, he's thinking, oh, I'm not a real Ferengi then. And what does that mean? And how do I grapple with this? How do I have this marriage with a Bajoran when she doesn't even value like the rules of acquisition? Yeah. 
And I think I think it's a good crisis for him to have because it makes him think more seriously about how much he loves Lita and if she's worth it and also how strong his convictions are about really defying the traditional society and how far is he willing to go with it. I just adore Rom. And I also want to talk about Nog because we know that Nog's mother stole all of Rom's money and ran away and we never have met her. But it seems like Rom was just taken advantage of and left with the baby. And in the beginning of the show, Rom is just working for Quark in the bar. He's getting paid terribly. He's getting bossed around and yelled at. And Nog sees this and he wants to join Starfleet because he doesn't want to become like his dad. Yeah. Oh, I just felt like you could see a lot of Nog's heart in that moment because Cisco's pressing him, why do you want to join Starfleet? Why, 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 why? It doesn't make sense. We've never had a Ferengi in Starfleet before. And it's because he wants to do better than the last generation than his father did. And even than Quark is doing. I think Nog has the lobes, but he wants to use them for good and for the good of the future. And I just love Nog so much. And I think that he does really value family, but he also values other people. He's not selfish like Quark is. He's like Rom. (laughs) Yeah. And I love that Rom instills these values into Nog, but he doesn't press him either. I think that he, similar to how Cisco is as a father, I think that Rom would be so proud of him regardless of what he ended up doing. I love to see the episode facets where Quark is trying to sabotage the test so that Nog doesn't get into Starfleet. And Rom has his mama claws come out and he says like, no, my son's happiness is more important to me than anything, even Latinum, he says to Quark. And I love that. I love that he is so passionate about his son's happiness and about Lita's happiness and about Moogie's happiness. Like he does value that so much and it makes him such a loyal person and such a great friend and a great husband and father and son, you know, in general, he values his family because he values their happiness, even Quark's happiness. Even Rom says to him once, like, you're my brother, whatever happens, we belong together. You know, even if even if Quark is being a jerk to him, he just loves so deeply. And I can really relate to that. I just I really love Rom. I could talk about him all day. (laughs) I do too. I also love how brilliant he is and how understated that is. Nog even mentions my father is a brilliant engineer and he could be a chief engineer on his own starship if he had joined Starfleet. Mm -hmm. But I think because of Rom's in this case, maybe kind of a weakness of loyalty towards Quark. He's at this low level position working at the bar, hoping, oh, maybe Quark will die and I'll inherit the bar. Or maybe Quark will get his own moon and I'll inherit the bar. You know, Rom's situation, like his hope for the future, are all riding on Quark doing well. And throughout the show, it changes. And it's all about how Rom makes a future for himself. He chooses Lita. He chooses to start doing engineer things. He chooses to start working as an engineer with O'Brien on DS And I think his evolution is so important to the overall evolution of Ferengi society because at the end, he becomes the Nagus. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's no better person to have an enlightened Ferengi because he's very, very smart. He's a genius, but he doesn't have an ego. He's oriented around doing the best for the most amount of people. And so he's a perfect, perfect Nagus. <laughs> Absolutely. And perfect for this new enlightened Ferenginar that they're transitioning into, which Grand Nagus Zek was leading. And because of Moogie, like this all comes back to Moogie again, which is amazing because she's such a powerhouse that she started dating Zek because Moogie gave 
Grand Nagus of Rankinar advice on how to win at the Domjot tournament, which had them connect and then he met her and realized she was a female and respected that and respected her and was getting financial advice from her and so she literally says that she was the power behind the throne which i love because again showing she's got the lobes and she's as cunning as any ferengi she's smart and caring she does also care about zek like she's not manipulating him she just wants the best for him and she knows that his memory's going she knows that he's struggling a lot as grand nagus and so she's also assisting him and making sure that Frenganar stays afloat and that the profits don't go down yeah i was wondering at first when i saw the episode that they were dating was she gonna kind of cersei game of thrones like manipulate him (laughs) from the back yeah Yeah, like she's running the show but she doesn't really care about him like it's just convenient that he's Mm -hmm. there but that's totally wrong she loves him she absolutely loves her zeki yeah (laughs) and i just think it's beautiful how their relationship goes and I am in love with Wallace Shawn. I mean, he's the genius uh, behind the character in Princess Bride. Inconceivable. Inconceivable. Like, I would die for him. And I'm so glad they casted him in this show. He's such a great addition and such a perfect character actor for a Ferengi, too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's every little motion he does i love his characterization of zek and especially when he tells quark that he's going to be nagus but because there's a lot of interference he thinks it's rom and then when he gets to the station he has amazing comedic timing yeah Um, that comedic timing is like gold press latinum like it is mm, chef kiss i yeah we both did a chef kiss at the same time Yeah, I just I love their relationship and I love that she cares for him so much. And I love that even before they were dating, Quark was already friendly with the Nagus. Yeah. And he helps him out of a lot of tight situations. And so this is a great little family that Quark has unwillingly gotten closer to throughout the series. And I love these little Ferengis. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that as much as Quark claims not to be a family person or, you know, he cares more about Latinum, I think that he really shows his true cards in the episode, The Siege of AR 558. Oh. Um, brutal and beautiful episode in season seven that really like hits hard about the trials of war. And in this episode, Nog loses his leg and Quark is just the most kind, loving, because Rom's not there. I mean, Quark is there because Nagus Zek asked him to be there on this surveying mission. And the way that he sits with Nog and covers him up with a blanket and he kills a Jem'Hadar to save them when it gets mm-hmm. too close to the infirmary. There's all of these acts of just beautiful selflessness in this episode. I mean, he yells at Cisco because he's sending Nog on this mission and he loses his cool when he finds out how hurt Nog has been. And I just, I love to see that side of Quark because it really shows that in these times of war, your true cards are really on the table, you know, and especially for someone like yeah. Mark, who is always sort of dancing around his true self to maintain that like Ferengi shield that a lot of Ferengis have. It just all comes crashing down when his nephew is hurt. Well, and I think Quark and Nog have a really interesting relationship because, as you mentioned earlier, Quark tries to sabotage him from entering Starfleet. He changes the parameters of the mm-hmm. test. <laughs> like I like our friend, uh, little Kirky. Um, 
<laughs> like our little gym. And he's not supportive at all of Nog joining Starfleet. I think he's not supportive because he does view Nog as his own child in a lot of ways because – I mean, Quark's not probably not going to have kids, you know? Yeah. And so I think Quark sees it as his responsibility to educate Nog. And I think, especially in the beginning, Quark does not view Rom that favorably either and thinks that he's weak and thinks that he can't amount to anything. I think he wants to change that for Nog and he wants to show him... I can make all the money and I'm going to show you how and I'm going to lead the path and you're going to follow me and we're going to have great success together because you learned from me. But really, I think it ends up being the other way around that Quark, in the end, when it comes right down to it, he loves Nog and he would die for him. He would kill for him yeah, as we literally, thought. Yeah. And I just think it's so special that even though – Quark doesn't approve of what he's doing as a Starfleet officer. He is damn proud of him. He really is. I mean, when he becomes an ensign, whenever he gets promoted, Quark, I think it genuinely says, congratulations, nephew, you know? And so I think it's a complicated relationship because Quark is not good with his feelings, but you know that he would do anything for his family when it comes right down to it. Absolutely. I have nothing to add. That was really beautifully said. I love how much depth we can find from these characters, especially characters who in The Next Generation I hated. Yeah. I did, I, every Ferengi episode was terrible. And mm-hmm. so it just brings me so much joy that I can love these characters. And, and that's, that's why I love Star Trek. That's a huge reason why I love Star Trek is something we can start out hating. Once you turn it around and you see their perspective, you end up loving them and falling in love with these beautiful characters who aren't real but teach you so much about life and i i've just really really enjoyed especially these deep space nine family episodes because it's been kind of a slog honestly to get through because there's i mean not in a bad way it's like the most joyous slog i've ever done Slog's <laughs> yeah. um, not a good word but it's been really really interesting to watch all of these episodes to prepare for this podcast and i think there's just something so special about deep space nine and our mom is actually watching it right now for the first time and she keeps texting us every time something amazing happens or scary or anything. And I'm just reminded about how thankful I am to have this series. And I'm so happy that we will be continuing to talk about Voyager and then Enterprise and we'll continue with our families. But I just had to take a moment and say that Deep Space Nine is such an incredible show. And I'm just so happy that we get to talk so deeply about these rich, rich characters. Well, and I completely agree and something else that always is baffling me is just what powerhouse actors they got for this show and deep space nine truly has some of the greatest actors i've seen in television i mean andrew robinson's performance yeah andrew robinson as garrick oh, yeah. i i think is really a special addition to this cast as well as mark alamo as gold ducat yeah just scary scary Um, scary scarily amazing (laughs) and avery brooks nana visitor amazing Amazing. just michael dorn even ferengis all of these ferengis are incredible i am just so happy that we took the time to talk about all of these families and how intrinsically entwined they are and how important they are to our own lives to see families reflected in tv shows in all of these different forms and i am thrilled to talk about Voyager next week because it's going to be a whole different type of family dynamics that we're going to have to unpack because they won't be physically with their families. And I'm super interested about how that's going to show itself 
as we discuss each character. I'm particularly excited as well, especially because in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic during the holiday season, so many of us have not been able to go home to be with our families. And I think the Voyager cast really understands that. Yeah. And I just think it's special that we as sisters get to talk about these family episodes. And I am very excited to have a new year coming up in just a couple of days by the time this podcast is released. It will be 2021. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, yeah. So I hope you will continue to listen with us as we eke into the new year. I hope everyone is staying healthy, staying safe, and that you are continually memorizing the rules of acquisition yeah, just keep, in case. Keep them, keep them brushed up and yeah. help her joy to all of you. Happy New Year. We are hoping that you are burning your scrolls and letting this terrible year of hell go into the fire with all of your regrets and fears and hoping that we can come out into 2021 stronger together. That was beautiful. I just want to say that my New Year's resolution is to see another Star Trek episode where a child meets their future selves. <laughs> <laughs> I think that resolution will definitely be fulfilled. So you're on a good track yeah. already. <laughs> I can't wait. Mine is to see a Star Trek episode where a family member hasn't been home in a certain amount of years. Well, if we're, if that's the next one. <laughs> Tune in next week to see both of these come true. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Dura Sisters podcast. Please tune in next week as Ashlyn and Rihanna discuss the familial relationships in Star Trek Voyager. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and check to see our suggested watch list for the upcoming episodes. If you like what you heard today, please leave us a review on whatever platform you listen. If you would like to become a patron, you can donate any amount per month to have access to our exclusive reviews of Lower Decks, Star Trek Trivia, and future reviews of the animated series. We would also like to give a special shout out to Michelle from New York for being a patron. To you, we say, Kapla! If you would like to contact us for any reason, please email us at Podcast at gmail.com. Our intro, Klingon Battle, was written by Jerry Goldsmith, in our outro, Worf's Revenge, was written by Aurelio Voltaire. You know you're a Deep Space Nine fan when you write human in the ethnicity section of the National Census Form.